1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard Leduc.
0: In this podcast, we want to start with an email that we received from a listener. Uh, Dr. Dirkmont. I'm curious about the book that Elder Oaks wrote back in the 80s. How much can that book be trusted? I know Elder Oaks is an apostle, but he wrote this book prior to his calling. And we researched the court records, but can anyone gain access to that information to verify his work? Thanks, Scott. First, Scott, thanks for not mentioning me. I really appreciate that, Garrett. Your answer. You
1: seem to have touched a nerve. No, no, uh, no, 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 well, no. If everyone would email in the future addressing only Richard, I think that would help.
0: That's it, that's all that I'm asking. All that you're asking. <laughs> I'm contributing almost nothing to this podcast. The least they can do is address all emails to me.
1: But with the title professor.
0: Oh, absolutely. Put some respect on yeah. that. I
1: mean, are you going to tell them that you're just an adjunct professor?
0: I don't think that's important. Yeah.
1: Well, I think I just did. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, that's a good question. And, you know, it relates to, that book relates to multiple of the topics that we've covered, both the martyrdom as well as um, some of the, uh, the actions of the Latter-day Saints after uh, Joseph's murder. The book, it's written in 1975, Carthage Conspiracy. And um, not only is it, is it written by a brilliant legal scholar, which is uh, Elder Oaks obviously is and, and was then. He partners with a historian, Marvin Hill, who is a, a, a professor in the history department at BYU, in order to write the book it is something that is uh, published by a university press. So it's published by the U- University of Illinois Press. And in when you're looking at academic work, when it's related to history, kind of the, the gold standard, so to speak, is if things are published by academic presses. And by what we mean by that is a, a university academic press, usually. So... There's a big difference between a book that's published by Cambridge University Press and one that's published, self-published on Amazon. Now, the one that's self-published on Amazon might have the greatest historical insights ever in it, but no one else who was a peer vetted it to say that it did. And so that's that's part of the, the first stop you go to when, when you say, is this book credible? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every single university press book that's ever been published is outstanding and all of the stuff in it's accurate and great. The reality is there are times I've reviewed m- multiple books in my career and articles. And there I've, I've had multiple times where I have said things to the effect of, uh, this is not good scholarship. It isn't using the sources that are available. It's not following the standards of historical argument. It should not be published. And then five months later, there's the same book that uh, is is then published. And so uh, it's not a foolproof scheme. Peer review does not prevent,, uh, you know, wrong or, or or bad arguments from being published. But it's a lot better than what the alternative is. And that is, I just uploaded this meme to Facebook. What do you think? I mean, the the reality is some attempt at oversight is at least better than no oversight at all. So it's important to know that that while, you know uh, marvin hill and 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 Elder Oaks are obviously members of the church, um, their book was published by, and non Latter-day Saints, academic, university press, and and so that's some insight into into how that book is received by scholars. To your more uh, particular point uh, and question of, of whether or not you know you could go replicate this is this you know is this a good book? First of all. Um, for the longest time it, it has been and still serves as the standard book that people turn to when they're covering the trial surrounding the assassins of, of Joseph Smith. It was written a long time ago. Half a century is a long time in the historical world, especially. And so are there aspects of that book that are not fully accurate today? Sure. Because in the intervening 50 years that have happened, I mean not quite 50 years, but close, I mean you know 47 years since it was published, um, we have discovered many more documents, many more personal writings of people involved in the trials, many more uh, you know legal documents that we knew existed but we couldn't find at the time. So that that's always one of the issues when you're dealing with historical writing is is, is books that might be very accurate, at the time will sometimes be, still be really good, but a little bit less accurate as more sources come up. Um, an, an example of why having more than one source for an event matters and how it might change over time is, uh, Richard, your, your son calls you up and says, Dad, I wrecked the car,
0: okay? Um, what happened? This uh, is a hypothetical? Uh, Or this literally happened while we were on vacation together.
1: We may have been on vacation together, actually, while we were recording podcasts. Yeah, that's right. It was early on in our podcasting days. Oh, the Halcyon days. (laughs) Oh, oh, these were the days never to be forgotten. uh, When we were in St. Thomas with a very noisy room with terrible microphones recording on I think it was on the martyrdom, was it on? It might have been actually. Yeah, I think it was. Um, as we were leaving, uh, Richard had a conversation with one of his as
0: yet to be unnamed children. It was Rigdon.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, now other people will know. Yeah,
0: yeah, I want them to know. Here's the thing. <laughs> as, as, a, as a quick aside, so we're leaving. We're violating all kinds of laws as we leave our seventeen-year-old in charge. We've got family and friends that are checking in on them, and it's, you know, all, as as our as soon as this is released, and our children are taken away from us. Yeah. Um, uh,
1: anyone who's working for child protective services needs to talk to them. But just so everyone's wondering, my kids, my kids
0: were with their grandma, so
1: <laughs> we were responsible. Yes.
0: Yes. And it was it was it was pretty simple. We were having uh, food uh, delivered to them uh, with Uber Eats or DoorDash or whatever. My wife went to Costco and bought all of the food, all of the things that they had. And we said, just stay home. Um, Don't go anywhere. Don't drive anywhere. Don't do anything. How long had he had his license? Just, just got his license. And we got to St. Thomas we got to It was our,
1: literally the day we got there.
0: It was within two hours of us we were, checking we in. We were driving
1: to go find our first meal. No, we were no, no, we
0: weren't. We were back at the at the Airbnb. I got a call that uh, he got into a fender bender. Um
1: in a car he was not supposed
0: to be in I well, wasn't all. supposed to be doing anything. And uh and I was Obviously stunned. How could you possibly in a fender bender at home, not driving? It's very
1: difficult to get in a car accident. Again, this outside of again. This is a hypothetical. Hypothetical. That's right. Right. So you find out that a uh, uh, you find out you you hear the story. Now this
0: uh, this is all hypothetical here because none none of that's true. It's all hypothetical.
1: (laughs) But you get one report of what of what happened. This isn't what happened in, in Richard's case, but let's say you know your teenager gets in a car wreck. And they, you know, what happened? And they tell you, I was driving down the road and this other person's car pulled right out in front of me and there was no way to stop in time. And so I hit him. So your reaction to that from on the information that you have is going to be, um, you know, it's going to be very different. You're going to say, oh my goodness, I can't believe that person pulled out in front of you. And I'm sure you also check to see if they're okay. Uh, I'm, I'm To Richard's credit, the very first thing he did ask his son is if he was okay.
0: Yes. I I hypothetically asked if he was okay, and then I also hypothetically asked if he's going to enjoy the next nine years not seeing his friends. Yeah. Hypothetically.
1: Right. Hypothetically. But anyway, in our scenario, things change pretty quickly if you get another source, right? So- if the only source we ever had on, on this description of this traffic accident was the teenager reporting back to their parents, a car pulled out in front of me and I hit them, well, then what else are you going to go on? That That's the only source you have. And then you get the police report and find out that the car that pulled out in front of them was, in fact, a parked car on the side of the road, making it much harder for the car to have pulled out in front of them, right? That's right. So it changes your opinion of what happened in those events. History is like that constantly, where we we may not have very many sources for a thing. And we have one source, and it's not very good, so I guess we'll go with that until we find something else out more. I mean, a great example of this is we um, we don't know how much... Emma Smith served as a scribe for the early translation portion of the Book of Mormon. We don't have the 116 pages, or if you happen to have the 116 pages, please email us here at the podcast. Um, it, so we can't actually look. So how would I find out? The easiest way for me to find out, the most certain way for me to find out, is I would look at the handwriting in the, in the pages. Right and, and oh, there's Emma's handwriting, there's Martin Harris's handwriting. There's Reuben Hale's handwriting, right? Why well, don't have any of the pages? I don't have any of the pages because uh, they were stolen. Martin Harris later in his life will make a reference to the fact that that Emma wrote more than he did on that early translation portion. It's a very late reference, and he is someone who would know, but it, it, it's it's the only reference we have,
0: right? sounds like, by the way, if I was Martin Harris, I would also say the same thing. I would say, hey, uh, you know, Emma did way more work than me just because, you know, she might still be mad at me for losing them or getting them stolen in the first place, you know? Yeah, exactly, right? But, oh, oh yeah, Emma, no, Emma's the best. That was all Emma, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Uh, if you were Martin Harris, you're trying to, you know, cover it up a little bit. No, I didn't even work on that at all. Uh, what do you mean the 116 <laughs> pages? That's not in the Book of Mormon. Um, but what if we were to find a source where, where they talk about, you know, uh, where, where, where earlier either Emma or Martin talks about how much they, tra- that would change our understanding of those events. So whenever you're doing history, you always have to be open to the fact that new sources might change the way that we interpret what it is we think about those events. So in that regard, look, 50 years of written history has passed since, that, since the book Carthage Conspiracy was published. It's still a very good book. It's still a source that, that scholars like myself use all the time when they are covering the periods of the, the, the events that happen uh, surrounding the trial of the assassins of Joseph Smith. But as, as any historian will tell you, over the course of time, as new things are discovered, one of the things you wish you could do is grab your manuscript back and and change it. Uh, I I told Richard he's working on his dissertation now for his, his his business degree, and and um, I don't know what it's like in business because I assume that you only know that you've arrived when you've know conquered several small corporations that's or, that's correct yes yeah, yeah. yeah how many people have i laid off that's how i know <laughs> that my right. PhD the importance is of business
0: is destroying people's lives yeah, that's the that's, main part yeah
1: exactly so he won't really feel like he's arrived until lots of them have lost <laughs> their jobs but it, at least for me i mean i you know i spent a lot of time on my dissertation but one of the sources i really needed for my dissertation was not a It was not a public source. It was the Council of 50 Minutes because it was talking all about the Latter-day Saints leaving the United States. I knew the Council of 50 Minutes existed, but I didn't have access to them at all. No one had access to them. So I had to write my dissertation without them. And I'd be the first person to tell you, had I those minutes, I would have rewrite what I wrote in my dissertation. Now, some of the conclusions I made would still be the same, but the way I made the arguments would be very different.
0: So two things. First, it sounds like your understanding of business comes from every 80s movie about Wall Street and the villains <laughs> around, around yes. Wall Street, number one. Number two, um, so kind of an example might be um, Richard Bushman and his book Rough Stone Rolling. Yeah, Rough Stone Rolling is, is a great, I mean is is,
1: by far the best biography of Joseph Smith that we have, as far as being an academic biography, a comprehensive, I mean, it's a massive book with very small print. If you haven't read it, it's gigantic. Um, But that was also written, you know, a couple of decades ago. And in the interim, in that time, the Joseph Smith Papers Project has published their, you know, several dozen volumes of, well, two dozen volumes of, of the Joseph Smith Papers and examine each of the documents underlying Joseph's life on a very minute detail. So so it's important you don't you don't you kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to when it comes to examining books that are written about history. His book has amazing, great points. It was a massive undertaking that will be very difficult for people to replicate at any time in the future. Uh, At some point, someone will, but it will be tough to do a better job than than he did with it. But he also didn't have access to all of the sources that would be discovered when the Joseph Smith papers began doing their archival research. A, A great example of this is I, you've heard me talk about uh, the uh, the the article that Jonathan Hadley wrote when we were talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon also we talked about it when we were talking about early anti-mormon reactions to Joseph Smith. He's the one who said that you know Joseph Smith was very illiterate essentially that no one was going to listen to this. But it it was a great source for early explanation of how both the angel appeared, how Joseph translated the Book of Mormon well, that source wasn't discovered when Rough Stone Rolling was written, so someone might come along later and say, "Well, how come he didn't use Jonathan Hadley's source? Because it wasn't discovered." So it makes it very easy. It wasn't used because it, they didn't didn't know it existed, right? Um, and and I'm not saying that people are critical of his book because of that, but what I'm saying is someone might, you know, you know, erroneously be critical of this work from the past because it doesn't include something that was discovered later. In this case, you know, this, this book, uh, Carthage Conspiracy is obviously an older book, but a very good solidly written book. At the same time, someone needs to understand that over the course of time, other things may have been discovered. And that's just how it is when you're when you are engaging in history, when you engage in history, you have to be willing to understand that other sources, other arguments might change what it is that that you're talking about. And I think now this was more boring than townships. Boy, it's close. It is close. And if
0: if it hasn't gotten there yet, if we had a room
1: full of people, everyone in the room would be asleep right now.
0: Hypothetically. Hypothetically, yeah, uh, speaking. So speaking of really boring, uh, we did a three-parter on uh, Abraham Lincoln, his connection to the church, and first of all, we are certainly very grateful for all of our listeners, from Rachel's mom to Gina in Vermont. And I think that, uh, and that's Which, that's the list, both of them. That's yeah. The
1: list. <laughs> well, my mom still listens, although she's pretty upset lately. Well, because we're making her move. That's true. We're yeah. not making her move, but from, she I, from Idaho. She's going to move down to to be around us. So. Yeah, it's, it's it's great, but. Uh, moving is one of those things that if anyone has ever moved can tell you sounds good until you do any
0: part of it. Yeah, it's like a red eye flight. Hey, you know if we fly it, in, in well, we could get there
1: in the morning and, and we have be, the whole day. We'd be able to party all day. And then sometime around ten a.m., you're laying in a gutter somewhere.
0: <laughs> anyway, so speaking of laying in a gutter somewhere, the those the three parter on Lincoln. Um, we certainly appreciate everyone that, that listened to that, but we received the most uh, feedback via email on that of anything else. Almost, uh, I was going to say triple the email. So we received one email. <laughs> no, we received a lot of emails. For A business
1: guy, he doesn't understand that zero times one is <laughs> is still zero. But
0: well, in, in accounting, you get creative. So the thing is, is that we received a lot of feedback on that, and and so it was it was interesting because <clears throat> there were a couple of emails specifically talking about this idea of religious freedom and the disconnect uh, between our understanding of religious freedom and what happened to the saints. I know that you've received lots of emails on that. I know that your students struggle with that every year.
1: And Speak so we, that. yeah, well, well, I mean, so we decided that <laughs> the, right. we would, uh, since people seem to like these American history asides, we, we would uh, talk about the Latter Day Saints view of themselves in this American ideological tradition, and how is it possible that the people who are persecuting them can see themselves as actually upholding the American tradition and the American way? So, so
0: what? What is some of the response from the students when you hear, they hear about what happened to them in Missouri? There's a
1: shock. I mean, we we haven't done it yet, but soon. And this is,
0: this, this one we will do.
1: We well, say we'll, we'll do it. We,
0: we have no intention of ever doing. It. We have a good friend, Brady. He always says, "When are you getting to those things that you said?" Oh, we're we have no intention of. Yeah, ever Yeah. Look,
1: it. I, as I said, we will do plural marriage sometime in our seventeenth episode.
0: Yeah, we'll do plural marriage the same way that God told Joseph when the second coming would be. Yeah. Yeah. If you yeah. lived, <laughs> if you lived
1: <laughs> your eighty second <82nd> year, <laughs> let that be enough. So if if we're in our seventeenth season, and uh, you know, it's just me and and Gina from Vermont at this point because Richard's long gone, uh, that maybe we'll do that. But we do need to do the one on on Missouri and its violence. And when I say the one, I mean that's really going to be like a it's going to be like a five parter, uh, just because Missouri is a long running issue. So we'll get more into the specifics of that, but maybe it would be a good thing to kind of lay some groundwork on American history generally and how the Latter-day Saints see themselves vis-a-vis American history and why it is that people who are otherwise freedom-loving Americans— believe that they are actually being patriotic when they burn a widow's house down in Missouri, when they shoot and kill someone like Edmund Durfee and demand that the the, the Mormons leave Nauvoo or Jackson County or Caldwell County, or I could keep on going because there's a lot of counties, Davies County, Ray County, just essentially anywhere we've ever lived. Why they think they can do that? And still be upholding the the American way of life, and and so there I get shock from my students. Uh, often I have students say things like, "I can't uh, believe that something like this happened in America." Um, often they haven't read a lot of other American history. I'm guessing, but still.
0: So, but to that to that point, I think that um, if you were to talk to uh, Native Americans, if you were to talk to African Americans, they wouldn't be as surprised.
1: I, I think that part of being stunned at the treatment of Latter-day Saints by by your average Latter-day Saint in America certainly comes from that place. They, they have an idealized view of American history that you know, sure, there were some a couple places where things broke down and and weren't the way we wanted them to be. But by and large, it was religious freedom. It was toleration. America, you know, was always on the right side of things. and And like you said, there are other, you know uh, minority groups in America that have been treated terribly both by the government and by uh, the citizens of the United States who wouldn't be that surprised. I mean, um, if, uh, you were to try to explain how crazy it is that, that mobocratic forces would be allowed to violently steal land from people who legally owned it. You're right that many of your American Indian friends would say, really, you, 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 you can not say. So you can't believe <laughs> that someone would want the land you're on and then kill you and take it from you. It's very I mean the, the reality is for for many Amer- many, you know, my American students, that's just not what they've studied in American history. So they know that things happened in the past. They they get that. They know that oh yes, there were some bad th- but they generally think of those things as being very much the exception rather than the rule
0: but but the reality though is as you've explained over and over again is that history is messy and you can have these circumstances that are horrific and yet the constitution is still inspired of god that there is still aspects of of these things that people hold ideals that uh, that don't necessarily are, are tossed out. I mean,
1: how do you how do you reconcile things, even when it comes to actions that have happened in, in church history? I mean, is Joseph Smith still the prophet, even though he invested in and supported and thought that the Kirtland Safety Society was a great idea? Right now, there were people at the time yeah, that, that said no, that, that that said absolutely not. God should have told him that it was going to fail. But there's a lot of times that God doesn't intervene. Um, I mean, probably that most poignant one is there in, in the Book of Mormon, right? When the when they're they're casting the believers into the fire, and Alma, Amulek, you know, amulet asks, "Should we put forth our hands and stop them from doing this?" And 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 they don't. I mean, that that's a poignant scene, you know, that's burned into my memory from re- reading the Book of Mormon. The reality is we, we we don't always know why it is that God intervenes at times and then doesn't at others. And the, the, sometimes when we are the ones setting the terms of, well, I know that God wouldn't do X or God wouldn't allow X to happen. It's really what people have to confront over and over again in world history, whenever Incredibly tragic and horrific things happen to good people, otherwise innocent people. How do we deal with it? And we talked a little bit about that in one of our earlier podcasts about about agency and about um, suffering. But the the reality is, history, is, as you said, it is messy. It it is not it is not easy. In fact, almost anything you can say about a historical event has some kind of caveat. Oh yes, this always happened except when it didn't happen. Now the exception doesn't mean that it didn't, that, that it never happened the other way, but it, it, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen either. Right. The the, the reality is that their history is messy. So what you have in Missouri by the time the saints, and, and we will, yes, at some point we'll do Missouri. We'll talk all about the saints being driven out of there. Um, uh, and and what was driving that? But you have people who very much believe that in their violent rhetoric against the Latter Day Saints, they are upholding American values. I, I I think a lot of times we assume or we 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 think of well I, I hear it all the time. You know, America was established. The whole reason the colonists came here was for religious freedom. you know, the colonists came here for religious freedom. They can't right and and that requires some nuance too because there were lots of colonies you know you know 13 actually to be exact um and and not every colony was established for the same reason it's true that when you're talking about the massachusetts bay colony and the puritans who are fleeing you know uh their uh, oppression from the church of england in england um that they come to to Massachusetts for a dual purpose. I mean, they have a company, they have a joint stock company, they are planning to try to make money while they're there. But the real purpose of why they're going is we weren't able to practice our religion the way we wanted to in England. We were being persecuted. The Puritans are, you know, Uber Calvinists as far as, and they don't think that the church of England has gone far enough in ridding itself from its Catholic overtones. And, and so they're being persecuted for not following the, the the Church of England the way they should. And there are Puritans who were executed uh, in England for speaking out against what was then the state church. So the point of going to Massachusetts is for them to be able to practice their religion the way they wanted to. Which is not the same thing as freedom of religion. Uh, we're not talking about people who got off the boat saying, we've got to make sure that every Catholic or Muslim who comes here has a mosque and a cathedral that, you know, I mean, that's not their intent. What they want to do is they want to go somewhere where they are allowed to practice their religion. And in fact, to the exclusion of others because they see themselves as having a covenant with God. They see themselves as a city set up on the hill and that that city is 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 God's only going to bless them if they don't allow the sinners into their midst the the point behind excluding someone from the community isn't just because they, you know, committed adultery and we're going to put a scar the, the point is if we don't keep our community pure then God is going to smite us so we have to
0: keep it pure just like the children of israel did so as an example they want religious freedom just not for roger williams
1: right roger williams is questioning the existing religious church structure and so he's essentially driven out of of, of the colony um and hutchinson similarly is going to be you know driven out of uh, of, of the colony this is not The point of the establishment of the Puritan colonies at Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay is not so that we can establish a land where everyone can worship God however they want to worship God. Their criticism of the Church of England was that the Church of England was not following more closely what it was that God clearly wanted them to do. Such as eliminating all vestiges of Catholicism from the worship service, right? So, their their big gripe is you aren't radical enough for what God expects us us to be. Um, But uh, they're not the only colony, right? So, in in Virginia, um, which is the other, you know, obviously the earliest colony. you have really a different kind of pattern of settlement. Here, the Virginia Company is, again, they're trying to make money. The, the point of the establishment of this colony is, is to make money. They established themselves on the Chesapeake Bay thinking that they are going to be able to monopolize a trade route. You know, They're very you know, centrally located. Maybe if you go far enough up the Chesapeake Bay, it might lead to a Northwest Passage. What's interesting is, as late as the the sixteen and seventeen hundreds, people are still looking for a way to get through North America, not not to come to it. North America is essentially a speed bump on the way to China, which maybe it is today. Yeah, you know, what, yeah, 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 actually, yeah. you know, the world comes around, but uh, <laughs> but it, it's it. North America is in the way. Because the real trade routes, you still want to get to India and to uh, the the spice islands and to get to Japan and to get to China, and and you have this continent that's in the way. But people f- believe there's so many waterways, and you know it, you know especially in the eastern half of, of North America, certainly some of these waterways and lakes actually lead to that great ocean on the other side. And so you know, part of the 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 idea of the settlement of the Virginia Company is, when that Northwest Passage is found, we will be like the supply depot for people going to going to China and to other places in the East uh, for for spices. But the Virginia Company uh, and the settlers in in Jamestown are not going there for religious purposes. Now that's not to say that they're not religious. i'm not I'm not saying that they didn't have religion. I'm saying that's not what motivated them to go. Capitalism is what's motivating them to go. The idea of gaining money and wealth off of this new land, and also uh, the idea of owning property which they couldn't really own in England. That, so there, there, there's there's these cultural ideas that are are driving this. But they are not going to Virginia because they just can't practice their religion the way they want to in England because of the Church of England. Because in Virginia, they're, they're all members of the Church of England. So they, they're, they're, not, they're trying to replicate what's back in England. They're not trying to create something new. So you really have these kind of two dichotomies, right? These two earliest colonies, Virginia first and then, and then uh, Massachusetts. One has commerce as an, a secondary goal, but religion as their primary goal. Virginia has commerce as its very much primary goal. And then, oh, also, by the way, we're religious. So you'll notice that commerce, capitalism, business is actually a part of both of those foundings, and that religion is a part of both of those foundings, but to different and lesser uh, extents.
0: You've mentioned to me before, when you're reading some something about the founding fathers, and they mention... Religion, you know that they're going to talk about cells. John Adams. Yeah. John Adams always John Adams, and and if and if they're going to say about how non-religious the founding fathers are, well, they they don't ever say that.
1: <laughs> okay, the book, I mean, whoever writes a book talking about them not being what, what, what will happen though is they'll say uh, the founding fathers believed in having an absolutely limited government oh, okay. yeah. and and not having any power at all. You already know when they say that that that. For sure, they're gonna that the next page is gonna be Thomas Jefferson, you know, you know, or (laughs) I mean, perhaps Patrick Henry, or you know, uh, even uh, Samuel Adams, maybe you know. But but they're not that we we tend to see in the founding fathers what we want to see in them. So when we say things like, well, you know, the founding fathers, they were all really religious. Well, many, of course they're religious and certainly more religious than people in our world are, but there's a reason why people always use John Adams as the example, because John Adams is really religious and is constantly talking about doing things on the basis of, of, of God, because he's coming out of that Massachusetts tradition and culture that, that Americans are required to do what God wants them to do. Um, so, yeah, you, you always you, the, you always have to kind of recognize that there for every for every John Adams the, who's super religious, there's also a Thomas Paine who is an atheist actually, or at the very least a super agnostic. He's the one who wrote the pamphlet Common Sense, which you know motivates people towards independence when they're in that 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 period of not knowing whether or not they're going to push for all the way for independence um but but he's not he is not advocating for independence because of religious freedom he he, uh, he he doesn't believe in religion at all i mean i'm sure he thinks people should be able to worship however they want but they shouldn't <laughs> because they you, you shouldn't so um these 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 American ideals are often in conflict and they have long histories. Religious freedom isn't just me worshiping God however I want. The most important aspect of religious freedom is that the person who disagrees with me is able to worship God however they want and the ideals that are that come out of the American Revolution are kind of like the the fuel that will eventually get us to a land that is more pluralistic in in religious belief in believing that you don't have to believe what i believe now the diversity of religion in the American colonies is already well beyond what it is anywhere else in in the world i mean the Netherlands is is actually a pretty diverse religious place. There, there's a pretty good amount of religious toleration there, um, and so these, you know, ergo the the Dutch colonies. I'm just saying this because I'm Dutch, by the way. Hundred yeah, percent. No part of this is probably even true, but no, but uh, but New Amsterdam, which you know, uh, uh, which will become New York, has many different religious groups. And there's no real attempt to enforce, much to the chagrin of the the Dutch Reformed churches' uh, uh, leaders. There, there's no real attempt to to enforce the, those religious beliefs. But still, most of these colonies have they they have their own religious practices that are set up. Uh, you know, uh, probably the the best example of early toleration. Is, is going to come from Pennsylvania, where Quakers are going to establish, uh, uh, you know, Pennsylvania as this refuge for Quakers. Quakers are seen as this radical group, again, outside of the, the box uh, thinkers when it comes to the Church of England. The, the reason why they are hated a great deal is that they think that it's wrong to give allegiance to any earthly governments. There are also often pacifists who believe that it's wrong to serve in the military at times. So as you might imagine, if you're a king and your primary thing you care about your subjects for is that you can use them to fight wars for you, well, Quakerism is not your favorite religion uh, with its pacifist uh, tendencies. So um, the... But in Pennsylvania, there is some limited amount of, of religious freedom, even then nothing like what we'd see today. The, it's important to understand that America is very ideological in its founding, um, meaning that <clears throat> it was established along the basis of ideas and ideals. And the Latter-day Saints, early Latter-day Saints, are all recipients of those ideals all throughout their their lives. Most of them are Americans. And even as you get an influx of Latter-day Saints that are coming from England later, they are still going to have some of these same traditional English ideals of the rights and freedom of of individuals to to own property and to, and to, to worship as they please. The problem is that is going to butt up against the very real world problems of what happens when you're a religious minority in, 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 in a place that's controlled by a majority that hates you. It, it's going to happen for the Colesville Saints in New York. It's going to happen for the Latter-day Saints in Kirtland. It's going to happen for the Latter-day Saints in Missouri several times where they are going to be driven out because they're these these this hated minority. and it's going to happen in Nauvoo and in Iowa and there's going to be a perpetuation of that into into the Utah period. Latter-day Saints are going to be arguing that they have a right to practice plural marriage because it's it's part of their religion. And, and here, the federal government and state governments, of course, are going to say, religious freedom has its limits. You don't have the right to do X because of your religion. Now, uh, th- this, this is where that kind of rubber meets the road. In fact, when, when the Supreme Court took up cases on uh, plural marriage, one of the arguments that is made by one of the judges, uh, you know, Supreme Court judges, siding with uh, these laws is polygamy is 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 evil. And anyone, you know, it's just evil. And because it's evil, it doesn't matter if it's someone's religious belief. And then to try to make a complete and total, you know, apples to oranges comparison, uh, he goes on to say something to the effect of that, you know, we wouldn't allow someone who killed and sacrificed someone to their gods to say that they were just practicing their religion. Well, okay, to a certain degree, I think most people agree there are limits to someone's individual practice of religion. But really those limits, the reason why it's an apples to oranges comparison is that if, I, if I'm if i going and I'm killing someone and sacrificing them to my god, they might not be a willing participant in that affair, Right. Well, what happens when someone is a willing participant? The fact that so many believers among early Latter-day Saints, uh, one one of the ways that they are derided is that they are duped, that they are delusional, that they have a frenzied mind, that they can't possibly be in their right mind. All of these things are ways of getting around the real actual problem, and that is how can a rational intelligent person believe this they have to have been tricked they have to have been fooled this has to because they see they see mormonism so called so in such negative light so we're going to intermingle a little bit of american history here as we talk about some of the founding ideals of the country it, as a way of helping uh, our listeners understand they're all asleep now I mean literally only Gina and rachel's mom are listening right my mom stopped listening
0: well she was never able to get it she couldn't download, download it. it no yeah. she's
1: still trying to download it now I, i'm 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 pretty sure that your wife's dad's not listening uh I don't know if he's downloaded this or not but I'm pretty sure he's not listening and um at, but at this point I don't blame him yeah this was this is pretty boring. Oh, of course, Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I think though that if you were looking for you know scintillating conversation, you were already downloading a true crime podcast. Oh, I was going to say. I was going to say. So what I, are you doing I want, here? I want something. Yeah. that
0: will be on the edge of my seat. Yeah. What about a Latter Day Saint? Yeah, yeah. History. I pod? need.
1: I need <laughs> to stay awake while I drive eighteen hours to Florida. What if? I know. Let's listen to a history podcast. You're the one making the bad decision here. Yeah, this is on. Me. This is on you. Yeah, I didn't charge anyone for this. Yeah. You. You. 3 minutes in you should have been like this isn't for me and then you're out you know but um well so anyway what we want to talk about on our next podcast is we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about the history of of ideology in America and we're going to use the Boston Tea Party as an example of how this event in American history is is often referenced even today in American history but, it, but often for the wrong reasons But it's the ideological underpinning that causes um, Americans to act the way that they do. Both Latter-day Saints claiming that they should have access to the rights and freedom of every other American. And also these other Americans who are then taking those rights and freedoms away from them. All the while claiming, I'm just doing what, what, what you should be doing in America. So... If if that isn't a good lead, well, yeah, yeah, Boston.
0: Gonna... I am sorry. So I just the Boston Tea Party as a teaser is the funniest thing I've ever heard. Hey, join join us next week
1: when we hold the Boston Tea. I'm not asking <laughs> them we ta- to drink
0: tea next week. Maybe we should next week when we talk about the Boston. Tea- I, I, it's, it's a very so I apologize because that was a very good setup for the next episode. But it's just funny to me using the Boston Tea Party as a teaser is just. It's, Would you
1: know, so. prefer we use townships as a
0: teaser? Well, yeah.
1: Next week, we're going to be talking about townships, townships, and more townships. And you can put in your guess as to what the greater metropolitan area of Montpelier, Vermont is, um, which we all greatly overestimated when we looked that up.
0: Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.